This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Talk, number 26, August 26, 1982. I am giving this easy chair about a week in advance. The reason for it is Chuck and Peggy Wagoner will be gone for a week, and it will be necessary, therefore, to tape this in advance and get it ready for reproduction and mailing as quickly as possible. It will go out at the normal time, but the work will be done in advance. Well, now to get on to other things. R.E. McMaster, Jr. Uh, has sent me a very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal for Tuesday, August 17, by Professor Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., entitled, Russia Revisited, Life There Has Improved. Now, Schlesinger complains that the hardliners in both the Soviet Union and the United States are creating problems. And he says, just as Soviet hardliners supply ammunition to American hardliners by invading Afghanistan, um, he says, so American hardliners give Soviet hardliners a hand by trying to block the European pipeline and so on and so forth. He concludes, surely it is not too late to stop the international conspiracy of hardliners who in weird lockstep are marching the rest of us down the road to extinction. Now, before he comes to this conclusion, Schlesinger also tells us how the USSR appears an increasingly bourgeois-behaving society, more so in some ways than the U.S. And the general picture he gives us is that Russia is changing steadily in the direction of being a bourgeois country. Well, of course, this is all garbage and very familiar garbage. First of all, this idea that there are hardliners and softliners as though Russia were a democracy is nonsense. We may have hardliners and softliners in the West, and we do in this country. But in the Soviet Union, it is a monolithic state. And whatever the party leadership decrees is done. Moreover, the thing that struck me about Schlesinger's article was that it was so familiar. I remember the whole argument from the time I was, well, really a high school student at first, and then a college student because the argument of the liberal establishment that I heard in classrooms at Berkeley back in the 30s was simply this. It is a myth that millions have been starved to death in the Ukraine. It is a myth that there is uh, torture and that there are slave labor camps or the equivalents thereof in the Soviet Union or that Stalin is a tyrant and a dictator. Their argument was, and these were highly respected academicians, very simply this. Russia has taken a turn to the right, and creeping capitalism is taking over the Soviet Union. Their proof of this was that Trotsky, who had been for a world revolution, had lost the struggle for control of the party. And this meant that Stalin had to be, therefore, a conservative by comparison. And therefore, there was great hope for the future in terms of Stalin. Now, of course, the argument between Trotsky and Stalin was not over the fine points of Marxism, but over the issue of power. They were both Marxists, they were both revolutionists, they were both dedicated to the triumph of Marxism all over the world. But because they insisted on reading their own illusions into the Soviet Union and into Stalin, they were unwilling to see to their dying day the reality of the Soviet Union. The arguments of Schlesinger are thus very familiar. Another very interesting 
newspaper item on the Soviet Union comes from August 20, and it's Joseph Kraft's column, and he makes this comment with regard to the Soviet Union. Rejection in Asia came on top of a stunning defeat in the Middle East. The Russians proved unable to check the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. They let down their closest ally in the area, Syria. They also abandoned the chief instrument of their spoiler policy in the Middle East, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Thus, Soviet stock in the area has been reduced to nearly zero. Then uh, Kraft goes on to say the fighting there was in a sense a test of the U.S. and the Soviet Union. For Soviet weapons in Syrian hands were systematically wiped out by American weapons in Israeli hands. The U.S. has thus become the arbiter of military confrontations in the Third World. A very important point. Now, one more item with regard to the Soviet Union, in a little more detail perhaps. An interesting book of recent years, which I just got around to reading, was published in English in 1979. It is by Leonid Plyushch. I hope I got that pronounced correctly. It is P-L-Y-U-S-H-C-H. The title is History's Carnival a dissenter's autobiography. Now, Plyushch's autobiography, <laughs> maybe I should refer to him as Mr. P, or Dr. P, because he is a scientist and a mathematician, is a Ukrainian. He was brought out of the Soviet Union as a result of the pressure of a variety of Western groups. From beginning to end, Plyushch was and is a Marxist. He is one of the younger scientists in that he was born about the time World War II began. He remains a Marxist throughout. As a matter of fact, it is interesting that as he protests the violations of Leninism, he is again and again treated with contempt by party members, although he himself was a party member, party bosses and other officials. He is a, an idealist who has no sense of reality as their general position. Pliushed as a boy spent some time in a TB sanitarium. He began his career as a school teacher in a rural community. And his comments on life in the rural community are very, very important because he gives us a picture that undergirds the data I cited last week about the very high death rate in the Soviet Union among men 25 to 35. And I'm sure, of course, it's true of women of that age. In other words, the military backlog, the reservoir, the reserves are not only in poor health, but they are dying. And the reason for it is poverty, and the fact that, as he said, in the rural area where he taught, a third of the people had tuberculosis. Now, given the facts of his own childhood in more favorable circumstances and the high rate of TB, and the fact that it had some damaging effect on him physically, even to his bones, it means that a very large number are not able to go into military service, into the compulsory draft, 
and a large number of those who go in do not have physical stamina. There's a high death rate for young people. Now, this is a military fact of considerable importance. He gives some grim facts about the poverty, the hunger, the famine, the reality of life in the Soviet Union. As a Ukrainian, of course, he has bitter things to say about the Russians. He gives us glimpses of the horrors of the famine of 1931, 32, 33, when Stalin systematically broke the peasant resistance to communism by taking away all their grain and allowing them to starve. He writes, for example, an acquaintance of mine who had been involved in the collectivization campaign in Siberia returned to Ukraine in 1933. The population of his native village was almost extinct, and his house stood empty. From his younger brother he learned that the survivors were eating bark, grass, and hares. What would you do when the hares are gone, my acquaintance asked his brother. Mother said that we should eat her if she dies, came the reply. I heard from him about several cases of cannibalism he encountered there, too terrible to relate. The famine had begun in 1931 when the more prosperous peasants refused to join the collective farms that were being established. The party began to hold daily meetings which the peasants were forced to attend. They were faced with a statement, anyone opposed to the collective farm is opposed to the Soviet government. Well, those who resisted or dragged their feet were starved to death. Their grain was collected by troops and guarded. He says, if hungry peasants tried to break in, the soldiers would shoot at them. Much grain rotted and much was exported. In 1933, the situation was made even worse by drought and crop failure. Starving peasants fled to the cities and other republics. Troops were stationed at the borders of Ukraine to prevent them from leaving. In the cities, bread was issued in small rations so that the city dwellers would not be able to help the peasants. Many city dwellers sympathized with the peasants, but some maliciously reminded them of the civil war when the cities had been starving and the peasants had either refused to sell bread or had bartered it for prized possessions. Writing about the famine was forbidden, and people who mentioned it in letters were often sent to prison for anti-Soviet propaganda. Parcels of food to the Ukraine were frequently sent back. While the famine was in progress, Ukrainian writers were dispatched to write reports about the peasants' prosperous life in the new collective farms. Well, there's more of this. The interesting thing, however, is that since World War II, a different temper is present among the people. He describes, for example, what is happening when he cites this case. He says that the army needs uh, reorganization because when soldiers from Central Asia, well, soldiers from Central Asia and the Caucasus were forced to fire on a crowd of workers after Russian and Ukrainian soldiers had refused to do so. The workers had made demands that had been put forth by the Bolsheviks before the revolution. And this fact was a very disturbing fact. They had to bring in Asiatic troops in particular 
because none of the European troops would fire on the striking workers within European Russia. Thus, there is emphatically a different temperament that is developing, a spirit of resistance. Moreover, at the same time, increasingly the people are aware of the fact that they are getting a stratification of a very ugly nature in the Soviet Union. He says, and I quote, the children of government and party bosses are intimately linked with the bohemian and criminal worlds. And by the way, someone who spent some time there told me that the world of the hippies continues among the children of the leaders of the Soviet Union. Rock and roll records are highly prized among them. On the one hand, they are satiated in a society of want. On the other, they distrust the fine words of their parents who often entertain themselves with pornography and horrors. And there is also the ruler's desire to enjoy the fullness of power, to become hereditary rulers, not just kings for a day. The Soviet bourgeoisie is changing from an elective into a hereditary caste. The privileges it enjoys and passes on to its offspring have no basis in law and depend on turnover at the top. The children of the bourgeoisie want either to become masters in their own right or to protest against their parents by becoming involved in crime, in fascist organizations, or even in the democratic opposition. There have been cases where children of high-ranking KGB officials have stolen banned books and made them welcome for Samizdat. Well, Pliushch goes on to describe the horrors of the regime, the growing movement for democracy within the Soviet Union, and the fact that more and more people are coming out to protest and to demonstrate publicly against the regime. Of course, many of their leaders, like Klyushch, are made examples of. He was sent to a psychiatric hospital and drugged and turned into a vegetable virtually for a time until his release was obtained. What we have in this book is a curious fact in that we have a candid account of the horrors of a Marxist state, which, of course, he insists is not true Marxism. And as a true Marxism, he wants to see a Marxist order. And yet, at the same time, there are more references to Christianity in Pleyush's book than in most books by dissidents who have emigrated to the West. The man is intensely interested in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testaments, and yet unwilling to come to terms with the faith, but unwilling to drop any interest in it. There is a great deal about the anti-Jewish actions of the Soviet regime in the Soviet Union. However, it is interesting, it is never openly cited for what it is. It is called anti-Zionism, but it is anti-Semitism of a vicious sort. Uh, Pleyush's wife was half uh, Jewish, and this in part led him to interest himself to a great extent in the persecution not only of all dissidents but of the uh, Jewish community and especially the Jewish intellectuals. Well, now to something else. A new book published this year, and by the way, the publisher of... Uh, is uh, 
Harcourt Brace Jovanich, New York, 1979. It might still be obtainable, but I don't know really. Another book published just this year is by an M.D. and a psychiatrist, Willard Galen, G-A-Y-L-I-N, The Killing of Bonnie Garland, A Question of Justice. This is a grim book, very unpleasant reading, but a very telling account of the world around us here in the United States. It deals with an actual murder case, a model Mexican-American Yale scholarship student from Los Angeles, half Mexican, half American, murdered brutally his college sweetheart from a very superior family, Bonnie Garland. He crept into her bedroom and hammered her to death, breaking open her skull, because she had broken with him. Uh, Richard Heron had been a, a superior student in Los Angeles. He got the scholarship at Yale. Quite a few Ivy League schools offered him scholarships, because he was a member of a minority group. And thus he became a very poor student, apparently because he knew that uh, he was wanted because of his minority status, and he was not likely to be flunked out. As a matter of fact, even with his poor record at Yale, he was accepted into graduate school in Texas. Now, the horror of this story is this. After killing the girl brutally, just because she put in an end to their relationship, the killer walked half-naked and smeared with the girl's blood into the Yale campus church. The priest, after hearing him, had only sympathy and a desire to help. In fact, he shed real tears. A nun did everything possible to organize support for him and made it the passion of her life. The Christian brothers worked to get him out of jail, on bail, and make him a part of their community until the trial began. The Protestant community was no better, simply because Heron, as well as the girl he killed, was a Catholic. The Catholic community was more involved in it. Here you had liberal religion epitomized in all its evil and its readiness to surrender any sense of sympathy for the dead girl and her family to bleed for the killer. And Galen says, and I quote, Our mechanisms of identification and empathy are central to our concepts of what is good and what is right. From the day of the killing, Richard attracted a host of concerned and compassionate defenders. When one person kills another, there is immediate revulsion at the nature of the crime. But in a time so short as to seem indecent to the members of the personal family, the dead person ceases to exist as an identifiable figure. To those individuals in the community of goodwill and empathy, warmth and compassion, only one of the key actors in the drama remains with whom to commiserate, and that is always the criminal. The dead person ceases to be a part of everyday re reality, ceases to exist. She is only a figure in a historic event. We inevitably turn away from the past toward the ongoing reality, and the ongoing reality is the criminal, trapped, anxious, 
now helpless, isolated, often badgered and bewildered. He usurps the compassion that is justly his victim's due. He will steal his victim's moral constituency along with her life. End of quote. Now, his point is very well taken. Whatever we identify ourselves and feel empathy for is central to our idea of what is good and what is right. And when again and again we see a community roused to sympathy for the criminal and not for the victim or the family of the victim, it tells us something about the nature of people. And the sad fact is the higher the level educationally and the more liberal the religious faith, the greater this kind of empathy for the criminal rather than for the victim and the victim's family. Now, the interesting fact is At least one member of that community, a person in a religious calling, mortgaged her house to put up bail for the murderer. Not surprisingly, the parents of the dead girl not only felt hurt and betrayed by the Yale community, but outraged by what they saw as a conspiracy of the Catholic Church against them. The father appealed to the clergy, to Cardinal Cook, to everyone high and low, and all to no avail. It was only when the matter gained a lot of publicity that Cardinal Cook was ready to see the parents but by then it was obvious that publicity had led to that, so the parents saw no use in such a meeting. No sense of responsibility governed the thinking of the parties involved. As the author says, and I quote, Everything is upside down when we insist on approaching justice from the standpoint of the individual. The insanity defense was introduced to bring a compassionate, mitigating limit to the concept of responsibility. The law demands responsibility. Whether there is such a thing as true or absolute responsibility is irrelevant Proper functioning of a society requires the assumption of its existence. Each individual must conform his behavior to expected models, and if he does not, he must be held responsible for his violation of the code. Unquote. Richard Heron, the murderer, also had the community on his side because of his predominantly leftist views. The fact that he was a member of a minority group helped. Minorities, contrary to the popular myth, usually get lighter sentences. Richard Heron was convicted not of murder but of manslaughter and given, I believe, eight and a half to twenty-five years sentence. When interviewed by the psychiatrist with whom he uh, cooperated, he said, I feel the sentence was excessive. The judge had gone overboard. And then he goes on to say that... Uh, in the answer to the question, what do you think would have been a fair sentence? Well, after a year or two in prison, I felt that was enough. 
At the time of the sentencing, I don't think I could have said, well, two years will be enough to repay society, or four years. After my first few months, I don't think that I had served, I didn't think that I had served enough time. I can't deny that it's grossly unfair to Bonnie, but there's nothing I can do about it. She's gone. I can't bring her back. I would rather that she had survived as a complete person, but she didn't. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that I shouldn't have been punishment, but the punishment, I feel, is excessive. I feel I have five more years to go, and I feel that's just too much. There's no, I don't see any purpose in it. It's sad what happened, but it's even sadder to waste another life. I feel I'm being wasted in here. At no time did he express any sense of grief or guilt over what he had done. It is interesting that Dr. Galen sees the type of criminal justice that we have which led to this monstrous case as a product of the humanistic spirit and optimism of our time. Thus, while he does not give any indication of what his faith is, and it does not seem to be Christian, he does recognize that what we have today in the way of criminal justice, as it is operative, is humanism in action. Well... Now to go on to some other subjects. One of the things that uh, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, had to say to the emperor of his day is very important. Because the Christians at that time were bitterly persecuted. And yet, in his apology, Tertullian issues a threat to the Roman Empire. This is what he said. We are a people of yesterday, and yet we have filled every place belonging to you. Cities, islands, castles, towns, assemblies, your very camp, your tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We leave you only your temples. We can count your armies. Our numbers in a single province will be greater. Now it's time that Christians in this country issued that kind of statement to Washington. And groups like the Moral Majority and others should marshal their troops and say to Washington, Now look, we've had enough of this nonsense. Rome trembled at what Tertullian said. They intensified their persecutions. But in time, it was Rome that had to give in. Now to go on to something else that is very much related to our time. The doctrine of the state which Christianity brought into Western history was that the kings, rulers, civil government must be defined in terms of God. That they were ministers of God and had to serve him exclusively. However, in the 12th century, a concept came into existence that, in a sense, aped the biblical position, but was radically different. It was the franchise theory of justice. And this theory held that all rights of justice must originate in grants from a superior. 
the man who granted justice, the king, could define the terms of the grant or intervene to see that it was not abused. Now, this uh, doctrine meant that justice was simply a privilege granted by the state. So that while it had for a time some beneficent elements in that a king could intervene if he saw injustice going and say, I have the right to intervene in any situation because justice is my province since it is a privilege I grant. It comes from superior to inferior. In time, as the priority of God receded, the king became an absolute monarch. Now, we have something similar in the modern doctrine of justice in that it comes from the state. It isn't called the franchise theory of justice as something, a franchise given by a central agency, just as the colonel's chicken houses are franchises from a central organization. But in effect, this is exactly what is happening today. We are equating justice and the state and saying justice is a grant of the state. And this is a very, very dangerous theory with far-reaching implications for all of us. Now, very briefly, to touch on uh, something else, the September 1982 Reader's Digest has a very important article in it, The Plot to Murder the Pope. I urge you to read it. We were subjected to so much garbage when uh, the Pope was uh, wounded as to the supposed right-wing origin of the would-be assassin. This article collects evidence to the contrary. It was a Marxist-governed plot. Sad to say, there appears to be no offer of reprints of this article. I suppose if the authors had written an article for the Reader's Digest on uh, how to improve your sex life, they would have offered reprints galore for that. By the way, I forgot to tell you the publisher of Willard Galen, G-A-Y-L-I-N, The Killing of Bonnie Garland, A Question of Justice. It is Simon and Schuster in New York, and I do not have the price on it. Now to a series of other things. First of all, I'd like to comment on the cover of the Reformed Journal, which is a supposedly Calvinistic periodical. This is the July issue. It has a picture of Calvin in a square, and next to it, no nukes, Institutes 426. Of course, that reference in Calvin has nothing to say about nuclear weapons, or anything that can be construed as having any relationship to that. But this is the kind of thing that is increasingly prevalent in some circles. And the Reformed Journal is, by the way, emphatically not Reformed, although it comes from a supposedly Reformed church. There is an excellent letter that uh, is in my hand from the Conservative Caucus and Howard Phillips, about why the Secretary of Education, Terrell Bell, must go, and the Department of Education with him. Bell has awarded $656,000 plus to Jesse Jackson's Push Excel. He has awarded 435000 to the National Organization for Women Legal Defense and Education Fund, this is, of course, a radical feminist group. Six grants totaling more than a million and a half 
to the Bay Area Bilingual Education League, which is associated very closely with Cesar Chavez, 825000 to the Association for Educational Communication and Technology, an offshoot of the National Education Association Union. And he has also given 141000 plus to the Council for Interracial Books for Children, which was originated by members of the Weather Underground, to whom the word wife is sexist. Terrell Bell also gave 107000 plus to the Radical United States Students Association and its uh, tax-exempt National Student Education Fund received over 205000 he also hired uh, Carol Henrich, a former legislative intern with the Radical U.S. Students Association, to be a student liaison officer. He wants to establish federally financed uh, a foundation for education assistance and to get involved in local education and more of the same. So the... Elimination of Bell as well as the Department of Education is a most worthy um, cause. Then I'd like to refer in passing to a very, very important uh, publication by the Adam Smith Publishing Company, 4425 West Napoleon Avenue, Materi, M-E-T-A-I-R-I-E, Louisiana 70001 the Aden Gold Study. It is in 29 pages, much of it technical, but understandable, a very important prediction concerning the economic future and gold. The author say that we can expect for the first two years of the bull market the price will be in a steady but quiet uptrend. To early to mid-1984, gold will probably be reaching its old high of $850. By this time, there will be rising inflation, interest rates, and oil prices. Soon after gold rises above 850 price movements will become much more dramatic and will continue to be dramatic until gold reaches its first price peak. Gold timing tools indicate that this peak will occur between September 1985 and September 1986. Figuring a 340% increase from the $850 level for the next cyclical peak, we arrive at a price of about $3,750 for gold. Technical analysis indicates that the price will peak within the approximate price range of $3,750 to $4,900. By October 1986, there should be a confirmation that the gold bull market is over. At that time, you would want to sell gold. The scenario is extremely likely. However, as we go along in time, our indicators will continually be monitored to identify cyclical movements in the gold and economic cycles. These indicators will also enable us to detect any major changes in the cycle. Why do we expect the cycle to recur? Because none of the fundamentals have changed. I'm grateful to Phil Spielman for sending me this very important study. Other economic indicators and reports confirm this. And... Richard Burgers, who is also on the uh, Calcedon mailing list, writes in his August 23 letter, The fourth major advance of gold since 1968 very likely will be dated from August 20, 1982. The time span of the last two major advances averaged over four years each suggesting a projected duration of this new advance well into 1986. The prior two advances saw the prior gold peaks each exceed by nearly 350 percent. 
projecting a possible peak of this cycle about above $3,000. A very important study. Then the Schultz letter has some grim things to say about the weakness of banks internationally, but time does not permit me to go into that. I'd like to comment on a couple of things, but first, last Sunday, Peggy Wagoner, Chuck Wagoner, who does the taping, his wife, gave me a very uh, interesting book that she picked up not too long ago entitled Unwritten History, Life Among the Modocs by Joaquin Miller, dated 1874. It's a very interesting book. It has to do with the Modoc Indians and the Modoc War, one of the less reputable chapters in American and Western history. Captain Jack led a small band of Modoc Indians in a remarkable resistance to the uh, pressures and aggression of the whites in the area. It is a very uh, moving book, although the language and the style are very much dated. Now, Joaquin Miller himself was a very interesting person. He was born in Indiana, very much... Uh, hated, by the way, by many in his day, as a man who always lived a pose. He moved west very early, settled first in Oregon, where he became, among other things, a judge, was a newspaper editor of a Democratic paper during the Civil War, and the paper was shut down for being anti-administration. He became quite famous as a writer and poet. Uh, he spent his latter years in California. He affected Western dress and long flowing locks and beard and was very popular in England as a true Western man. Now, Joaquin Miller whose real name was Cincinnatus Heine or Heiner, there's an uncertainty there, which it is, Miller, took the name Joaquin as his pen name. It was a familiar name to everyone who went to school in my day. In fact, uh, I was interested when I was telling Peggy Wagoner and others about Joaquin Miller. No one there in the group of, uh, oh, maybe a dozen or so who were there sitting around knew anything about Joaquin Miller, except, of course, my wife Dorothy. Well, that was very interesting because it uh, was a reminder to us that we're uh, somewhat older than the rest in the group. Because when we went to school in those days, uh, virtually every school child memorized a famous poem by Joaquin Miller. And uh, I'm going to read that poem now because some of you may know it, but others do not. And it'll tell you something of the difference in education then and now. Because it was poems like this that were, we were made to memorize. Poems that had an emphasis on moral character. And Dorothy and I were surprised after reading this poem how much of it came back to us. We had memorized it as children. And uh, after one reading, I could almost... Uh, repeat it without the text. Well, here it is. The title is Columbus. Behind him lay the gray Azores, behind the gates of Hercules. Before him not the ghost of shores, before him 
only Charlotte sees. The good mate said, Now must we pray for lo, the very stars are gone. Brave Admiral, speak, what shall I say? Why say, sail on, sail on, and on. My men grow mutinous day and night. My men grow ghastly, wan, and weak. A stout mate thought of home. A spray of salt wave washed his swarthy cheek. What shall I say, brave Admiral? Say if we sight naught but seas at dawn. Why, you shall say at break of day, Sail on, sail on, sail on and on. They sailed and sailed as winds might blow, Until at last the blanched mate said, Why, now not even God would know Should I and all my men fall dead. These very winds forget their way, for God from these dredged seas is gone. Now speak, brave Admiral, speak and say, he said, Ceylon, Ceylon and on. They sailed, they sailed. Then spake the mate, this mad sea shows his teeth tonight. He curls his lip, he lies in wait with lifted teeth as if to bite. Brave Admiral, say but one good word. What shall we do when hope is gone? The words leaped like a leaping sword. Sail on, sail on, sail on and on. Then pale and worn he kept his deck and peered through darkness. Ah, that night of all dark nights, and then a speck. A light, a light, a light, a light. It grew a starlit flag unfurled. It grew to be time's burst of dawn. He gained a world. He gave that world its grandest lesson on Ceylon. Now that poem does get to uh, the spirit of Columbus very ably. And it also makes a good point. It's excellent teaching for school children. And that type of thing is now gone. Well, now to answer a question some of you have asked. You were glad that I shared with you some of our problems, activities, planning, and so on with regard to Calcedon. And you suggested more of this from time to time. Well, let me share with you what some of you already know about if you've received one of our August uh, thank you letters. Dr. Douglas Kelly and Howard Amundsen are at present in Europe. They started a week ago Monday in London where they met with uh, Margaret Thatcher's aide, who wanted to know something about our ministry and its implications. They then spoke on the same subject and what Christian Reconstruction means to a group of students there in London, then to two groups of ministers and laymen in different parts of England, then on to Scotland for a conference and a series of meetings, as well as an opportunity there again to speak about Calcedon's work. They spent um, a day with uh, Dr. William Still, one of the great churchmen of Scotland, who contributed an article to our current issue of the journal. And, of course, uh, Douglas uh, was very happy to spend a little time also at the Isle of Skye, from whence the Kelly family migrated to this country in 1802. And Douglas visited relatives and stayed with them while there. Then on to um, Belgium for a world conference of medieval historians. And then they will, in September, be in France and Switzerland, and Douglas will be 
speaking twice in French at a conference and lecture and preaching once in French. Something he hasn't done for about ten years, so <laughs> he's uh, a little concerned about uh, that, but I'm sure he'll do very well. In Switzerland, they will be with Jean-Marc Berthaud, one of Calcedon's very strong friends and co-workers, who is putting out a Reconstructionist um, paper there and accomplishing a great deal. Using some of our material, he has had an impact already on proposed legislation in Switzerland in that he has been able to block it. So they will finally return on about the 16th or 17th of September. We've had a couple of uh, phone calls from Britain indicating an excellent response and uh, very successful meetings. Now, this is one area of our work abroad. Let me say we do not try as we work with groups, whether in New Zealand or Australia or elsewhere, to tie them to us. We're not interested in building up a power center. We believe that what we have here is a faith and idea center. And we're very happy to feed these ideas to these groups. But they're all on their own. We believe one or two new groups are going to be created in Britain. And we think that's wonderful. But they're going to be on their own. We are not an administrative center, but an idea center. And we hope to continue to be such and to build up our base as the Lord provides the funds. So this is our uh, purpose as we view the future. And uh, we do hope you'll be in prayer that God blesses our plans and our hopes in this direction as well as in others. Well, we have just a very brief amount of time left. I'm very happy that uh, so many of our tapes for the Seattle conference have gone out and that the reactions to those have been so very, very favorable. It's been a real delight to us. I'm also very happy to report that the quality of work of our tape ministry is um, making an impression. As a matter of fact, Professional Broadcasting Services is now giving to Chuck Wagoner and uh, Ken Thurston some other uh, programs to tape so that uh, the Stan Evans broadcast for Western Goals and several others are now being done here through the uh, uh, reproduction uh, center that uh, Ken and Chuck have. Now, while the tape ministry is a part of Calcedon, their reproduction activities are separate so that uh, they are in no way connected with Calcedon's ministry. That is a part of a for-profit work. It's long ways of being <laughs> profitable yet because the men have put in uh, at least 60000 in new equipment this year. And they are working to make this uh, as professional a reproduction and uh, taping center as possible in order to do Calcedon's work and that of other worthwhile groups. Well, it's been good to be with you again. The time span for me will be a little longer because this was taped a little earlier. 
but I'm looking forward to the next meeting. I've got material piling up, and I do hope next time I can get to a very important new book on Japan. Uh, well, I don't want to get started because when I get started on that book, it'll be hard to stop me. It's extremely important and very telling. Well, until then, thank you for listening and God bless you.